0: Talking Feds is sponsored by our friends at Total Wine and More, rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine, spirits, and beers. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. We have a few recurring topics on Talking Feds, where we return to the same territory every few months. First among them, given the origins of the podcast as a prosecutor's conversation, is the Department of Justice, where we try every quarter or so to size up what's happening there with some of the professionals who serve there or know it best. And in the three months since our last deep dive, the department has been repeatedly in the forefront of the news a spot that we know Attorney General Merrick Garland is not keen to be. Garland is navigating a delicate balance. He wants, on the one hand, to restore the department to a position of apolitical, professional law enforcement. But on the other, he has to deal with at least some of the fallout from the political and legal abuses of the department under the Trump administration. In recent months, it has seemed like a roller coaster of hairpin turns and plunges and climbs. The Carroll defamation case, in which the department stuck to its position of defending Trump. The Mo Brooks decision going the other way. The decision to appeal in order to release a DOJ memorandum about the Mueller report. The executive privilege claim permitting scrutiny of DOJ deliberations. All these and several others provoke the question. Is the department keeping its head down and completely ignoring politics in the past or is it consciously looking to repair at least some of the damage it inherited from the Trump years? Rather than tackle three or four recent big decisions from the Garland DOJ, we're gonna look more at the department that has been taking shape generally since Garland took the reins in March. And to do it, we are fortunate to have the depth of expertise and experience of three colleagues and friends who know it well, And in the case of the former employees who love it well, and they are Katie Benner, the New York Times reporter covering the Department of Justice. In 2018, she was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for public service for reporting on workplace sexual harassment issues. Katie, welcome back to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me. Amy Jeffress, a litigation and national security partner at Arnold & Porter and the co-chair of the firm's White Collar Defense and Investigations Practice. She's a former federal prosecutor and had several high-level stints at Maine Justice, including as a young lawyer in the office of the Deputy Attorney General, where she worked closely with Merrick Garland. Amy, welcome back.
1: It's great to join you, Harry.
0: And Matt Miller, a partner at Villanova and former director of the Office of Public Affairs at DOJ. He's a justice and security analyst for MSNBC and has worked in leadership positions in both houses of Congress and might be the most frequent guest on Talking Feds. Thanks, as always, for coming, Matt.
2: Always good to be here.
0: Let's start here. So several of the attorney general's early decisions provoked some consternation on the left among constituencies that were basically arguing that he needed to take steps to overcome the damage from the Trump years. That's changed in the last few months. So I'll quote a recent op-ed by Jennifer Rubin, Merrick Garland is on a roll. How do we account for that? Has there been a sort of change in his approach to
2: certain issues? And if so, why? look it's very hard to know without a doubt the decisions in in recent weeks have been of the more, let's just call them liberal, right? Or certainly decisions that progressives like more than the decisions in the earlier weeks of the department. And it's hard to know whether that's just a function of the calendar. You had a series of decisions that were served up to him in his tenure, all in a sequence, right? The decision to release or not release an OLC memo that Bill Barr relied on, that this decision whether to intervene in the Jean Carroll case, uh, sexual harassment lawsuit against the former president. And it may just be that he would decide those decisions the same way he did today, they just happened to come early and they happened to come in sequence and they built this narrative about him as someone who the worst criticism was kind of an apologist for the past regime, which I never agreed with. And if that's the right way to look at it, then this has just been a function of the calendar serving up decisions. And by that, you mean, Matt, there are court deadlines and they've got to file something by a week. That's right. As we've talked about on this show before, the hardest thing about coming into the Department of Justice, it's not like everything hits reset. There are court proceedings and investigations that are all midstream, and you don't control when you get to make a decision on those. You have to make them by certain deadlines. And it may just be that these decisions that he's making now are the decisions that he's making because they're at the right time. I suspect that's mostly it, but I do also suspect that he's being somewhat responsive to the criticism, and is getting a little bit better handle on the department and on the decision-making process, and is doing what happened at the department when I was there in the first year, realizing that we need to get our hands around all of these decisions maybe more holistically and realize how different decisions on the calendar interplay with each other and let's take time to make the right decision rather than be kind of jammed by the building. And you're getting more carefully considered decisions. And I suspect some of that probably is a bit of a reaction to the very harsh feedback he got early on.
1: Well, I'm curious to know which decisions you think he would decide differently if they presented now. I'm not sure I totally agree with you. I certainly agree that he has not changed his philosophy in the last four or five months. He's fundamentally the same person that he has been in his, you know, very, very long and distinguished career. But I think it's partly the way the decisions are served up. And then in one case, with respect to the media policy, that decision was really made by President Biden and then driven from the top. So I don't know that the Department of Justice would have changed those guidelines if it had been left to the Department of Justice. But President Biden took a stand and the Department of Justice, of course, follows suit because that is a policy matter that the president can change that is not tied to any particular investigation, in which case It would be inappropriate for the White House to dictate the Department of Justice's actions.
0: Well, I think that's an important distinction, policy versus litigation, and also what Matt says about coming in early. Both of those have a conservative bias of just staying the course while we figure out what to do. So that does matter. But let me push back a little, because I don't think it's necessarily, Amy, a charge that he's a different person But here's how the same op-ed puts it, that he remains vulnerable to criticism, that he favors institutional continuity over the quest for truth and accountability. That's kind of a loaded way to put the second point. But is there a sense in which the same person has decided that some of the remains and the legacy of the Trump administration can't just sort of be ignored and it's his job as AG to not simply try to be Edward Levy and do everything on complete neutral ground, but that there's some really serious stuff that's been laid at his door, so that he's tacking in that way.
3: One, I think that the comparison to Ed Levy is very interesting because it presumes that they're working under the same set of circumstances. You have a disgraced president leaving office and the incoming attorney general picking up the pieces. In some ways, that does seem true, but in the case of the post-Watergate White House, you had a president leave who was disavowed by his party, who was then pardoned by taking off the table the question of whether or not the Justice Department would have to itself delve into the political decision, do we prosecute Richard Nixon? Do we hold the Nixon administration in this big way to account by holding the president to account that question was completely taken off the table and not something that the Justice Department had to deal with after Watergate. Now Garland has not gotten that. he's probably not going to get that and this is going to be a huge issue. It actually makes his job in some ways harder, far more politically charged and he's not going to get the same kind of break that the Justice Department got after Watergate So that's one point I'd like to make. I know the comparisons made all the time. I actually just don't think it's that simple I think Garland's job is harder because he has to navigate. Actually, more political landmines, just as a start. And then speaking from that, that idea of institutional continuity, I actually do see the decisions that he's made as preserving institutional continuity. I do think that's his goal. And even though the decisions, the outcomes, have made progressives more or less happy, or made conservatives more or less happy, I do think that they are all done from this same place of how do we preserve this institution and what is the right thing to do for the institution? So if you look at the E. Jean Carroll case, he was not deciding whether or not the government should step in and replace Trump as a defendant. He was deciding whether or not the department under the Obama administration should undo the decision made by both career and political people previously. And to undo and override a decision made by career people You really have to say that what they did was completely wrong, that they erred. And when he looked at their work, he did not see an error. He saw precedents that the Justice Department had indeed made that decision to step in for an official in cases where the official was accused of defamation, which is the charge that E. Jean Carroll levied against Donald Trump. That's very specific, and those are the precedents they were looking at. Now, you have to think to yourself, if he'd been the attorney general when Carroll originally sued Trump, Would the Justice Department have made that decision? That I don't know. But what I really do feel is that when he was considering what to do, he wasn't considering, is this right or wrong? He has said he thinks that what former President Trump did was abhorrent. You know, it was, is this in error? If this was not a decision made in error, then what is my justification for overruling career people and political people for overruling these people based on precedent? And he did not have one.
0: A quick factual follow-up to you. And we actually know, it would come as a surprise maybe to others, that inside the department there are very strong voices for staying the course, not on liberal conservative grounds, but just because the civil division is litigators and it really helps them to get pro-executive decisions, for example. But your account of it, Katie, very much had him making the decisions, reading the cases personally That surprised me some. I wonder if Amy and Matt felt similarly because there's a reg there that says it's the SG's decision. I would have really thought that it would have been her decision to gather everyone and maybe he could have overturned it. But your reporting suggests he took the ticket on that personally. Is that right? And does it surprise the work with him closely?
1: It doesn't surprise me, Harry. I think that even if it is her decision, it's an important one that's going to be scrutinized and he will want to do the homework and make sure that he fully understands it. Because even if it is her decision, he is ultimately accountable. He's the attorney general, it's his department, and he wants to make sure that he agrees. And I'm not surprised. I do think, Katie, your points are so interesting. And in one respect, There's a recent decision that I think sort of teases out the interests that you're talking about in a different way. And that is the decision to basically to allow the former Justice Department employees and senior officials to testify before Congress with respect to what happened on January 6th and the election interference or the attempts to overturn the election results and the activities within the Department of Justice relating to those efforts which I think is very interesting because we know from Richard Donahue's notes of the phone calls with the president that the senior department leadership, even the Trump appointees, were resisting what the president was trying to do there. And so that's really the department. You were saying that the party has to repudiate, or in the Watergate situation, the party had repudiated the president. Well, in this particular respect, the senior Department of Justice Republican leadership had also repudiated the president's efforts to overturn the election without a basis. So that's one where I think Merrick Garland's decision and the department's decision to allow these officials to testify really was consistent with what the senior department's leadership then and now favored. So I think it's an interesting sort of counterexample a bit to your Watergate analogy.
2: I agree, Amy, that's one of the most interesting decisions that he made recently. And it's the one that makes me think he's both been responsive to the criticism and also starting to conceive of his job as attorney general maybe a little bit differently. And I say that because I think of that as almost the opposite decision as he made when he had to decide whether to release this OLC opinion regarding the Mueller report. In both those cases, while I, you're obviously correct, Amy, that the people inside the department very strongly opposed what the president was trying to do and what other department officials were trying to do, I strongly suspect that the career people at the department now opposed allowing them to go up to the Hill and testify about it for the usual reasons that they take. These are privileged conversations. We can't set a precedent of allowing people to go up and testify in the same recommendations they would have been making to the Attorney General to not release that OLC opinion. In the case of that OLC opinion, he decided to keep it secret, or at least to keep parts of it secret. In the case of these former department officials, He said they have to go up and testify, or at least that they can't rely on DOJ privileges. That to me felt like a bit of an attorney general deciding that there are broader interests at stake than just the institutionalist DOJ position, that we have to protect our privileges at all other costs. I go back to what Katie said about in the Carroll case, he felt like he was making this kind of narrow decision, not judging it at first glance, but kind of a higher burden to overrule the decision that people had made previously. And that to me feels like the way an attorney general conceives of his or her decision making early in their tenure where they feel somewhat constrained versus later in their tenure where they have their sea legs a little more and feel like they know what they want to do and they're going to force their will on the building and not always accept the choices that are served up to them. I saw this happen, as I know you did, with Attorney General Holder. And it just makes me wonder whether those two decisions, both about similar things, came to different outcomes because both his increasing comfort with the job and a reaction to the criticism. It feels a bit like that to me.
1: It's a very interesting question. Yep. So I agree with that
0: strongly. To me, that is Exhibit 1 for some kind of different role. What the department wound up saying was, well, privilege is bottom line about public policy, and here the public policy is so strong— I've never heard of a privilege analysis like that. That's normally (laughs) the reason given for why you stay the course with privilege. And it's certainly not the institutionalist position. So in that sense, I think Matt nails it. Now, one thing that occurred to me, famously, he was so inflamed by the Oklahoma City incident, turns to Jamie Gorelick, his boss, your boss, everybody's boss. I got to go there. It may be that there's a January 6th fire in his stomach that makes him think, I need to go broader. But I think the argument that he was just being the Garland institutionalist, as you explained for, say, the Carroll decision, I don't think it holds up. And and in fact, I'm glad for the country it happened, but there was a, a strain in the decision of trying very hard to make it sui generis and not have it come back and bite The department.
1: So the letters to former Acting Attorney General Rosen and the other officials were signed by Brad Weinheimer. I don't know if you noticed that, but Brad Weinheimer now has the position that David Margolis held for decades and is the senior most career official in the department. So that was no accident. The deliberate decision to have Brad sign those letters and send those letters to his former bosses I thought was very interesting. And I wonder whether there weren't career people at the department who actually want this to be known, that it should be known that senior department leadership resisted this effort to undermine our democratic principles. I think there might be more. There was a lot about sort of deference to congressional interests and legitimate congressional interests and some of the same strains that you saw in the recent OLC opinion. So I think that that's a theme. And then I also think that respect for career prosecutors is definitely going to be a theme of Merrick Garland's tenure. He himself started as a career prosecutor. So did Lisa Monaco. They're going to be very, very solicitous of the career people in the building in a way that Bill Barr was just quite the opposite.
0: Here's another thing I kind of think about. him. I loved the description in one of your pieces of Garland as slight, alish, soft-spoken, and deliberative. And there is, I think, along the lines of what we're talking about, this sense of him as extremely judicial and neutral, but he's not such a naive, right? I mean, he has a sense of, politics and the right place for them. He's not simply, for lack of a better word, just a dweeby guy. He has a fuller mindset about national issues and the public good.
1: Yes, but the department also does try to resist the political impulses. I resist that a little bit too. I mean, I think you no know, everybody's mm-hmm. going to be paying attention, but the department does try to adhere to principles in a very deliberate Methodical way. Matt's smirking. Matt, you might disagree with that. The public affairs people are always more politically astute than the career people like me, for sure.
0: Well, our last time we were here, Matt noted a kind of political tin ear in the Giuliani search warrant, but I don't think he's just a sort of bookish librarian guy.
3: Deliberative and quiet means that you don't have a spine. I think that you can be a very assertive and very bold person without sounding like Bill Barr.
2: Mm-hmm. And not being self-promoting is such a big theme. Look, yeah. the Attorney General has to be a political creature to some extent. And by political, I mean not a stick your finger to the wind and make decisions based on politics, and certainly not based on partisan politics. But at the same time, you can't be so blind that we are going to follow institutional norms to the detriment of the country, and you are, are closing yourself off to very real demands from the public and meritorious demands from the public. I mean, if the department left to its own devices, not thinking about politics, got to make every decision just based on institutional culture, precedent, and the law, then we would see more secrecy than we see now. We would see fewer documents and pieces of information turned over to Congress and made public. There are a host of areas where political pressure on the department and an attorney general making What are political decisions in that he's responding to public pressure for good reason to overturn decisions that the department has made in the past leads to good outcomes. Now, the balance, right, is doing that for the right reasons, not for the wrong ones. And when you see attorney generals fail, it's because they make them for the wrong ones. That's why the attorney generals who have failed for the other reason, and I'll say the last attorney general in the Obama administration, I think Loretta Lynch's tenure was inconsistent because she was just a by-the-books prosecutor, which is half the job, but it's not the complete job. Any disagreement
0: here? Everyone's down with this idea that, yes, of course, in some ways, the finest attorneys general have a political antenna that, as long as not used for the wrong reasons, is a good attribute for the position.
3: I'd be willing to agree with the negative formulation of that statement, yeah. which is attorneys general who have no political acumen whatsoever tend not... To succeed, for example, I think A.G. Lynch, no matter how many great qualities she had, the tarmac meeting was probably not a great idea and not a decision that somebody with a keen political sense would have made.
0: I'll put it this way, as we all are, well, I think a big champion of Garland, which is having a broader vista, but not one that is about furthering the personal or political fortunes of the president. That's a very big distinction. Some AGs really have taken it as their job, Democrat and Republican. That there's just not a whiff of. So the the broader considerations he might bring to bear are not having to do with the success or reelection of of President Biden. My sense, in fact, Katie, you might know better, is that he has very sparing communication of any sort with the White House.
3: Yeah, he's really only communicated with the White House on policy issues and oftentimes in these public settings when he's gone over for some sort of announcement. He is trying to keep communication to the very barest minimum, in part to restore the norms that I think that we might have been used to, not just pre-Trump, but norms that date back to his time in the Justice Department working under Janet Reno, who famously did not have a close or warm relationship with the White House.
0: Or political acuity, I think. That was a strength and a weakness, I think it's fair to say, of, of Janet Reno. So that strikes me as the case, and it it also, I think, underscores that there was probably no area of greater abuse in the last administration, and it takes two to tango. I mean, when it first used to happen, I was just thunderstruck having been there when Garland was there, but it became routine, and obviously it was not just that Trump would pick up the phone.
1: I did want to raise sort of a contrary example to the Eugene Carroll point that you were making earlier, and this is just to go back to the OLC opinion relating to Trump's tax returns. And this opinion to the Department of Treasury did reverse the Department of Justice's decision in the prior administration not to authorize release of those returns. The rationale was that the prior decision did not adequately consider the legitimate congressional interests. And they had a little bit more information from Congress about those legitimate interests. But in fact, the underlying facts really had not changed all that much. But this department made a different decision than the previous department had made. And so I think that that's an interesting example of where the department has changed course from the prior administration in a very significant matter.
0: I agree. Although that one I'd see as having been dead wrong and and from the start. Oh, there's that. (laughs) All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks,
4: Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, the topic of seltzers bubbles up as we aim to address whether seltzers are friend or fad. Maybe you remember your first delicious dance with Zima back in the day— but for a lot of us, our first seltzer encounter happened poolside or at the beach a few years ago when Whiteclaw opened the fizzy floodgates, creating a surge of seltzers to hit the market. Now, it seems like every week, five new fruity flavors enter the scene from the smallest of independent labels to the biggest of brands. Take Anheuser-Busch, for instance, who pumped a billion dollars into their seltzer game this year, proving that seltzers are here to stay. And what's not to like about that? They're fun and exciting. They're light, crisp, and refreshing. They're lower in calories and carbs, which makes them less filling and easy to drink. So for now, we say, let your seltzer flavor flag fly and stock up for the summer, because this is one fizzy fad that shows no signs of fizzling out. So pick up a few of the newest flavors at your local Total Wine & More.
0: It's now time for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news but not always well explained. We're hearing regularly that the Democrats are considering the extreme step of reforming the filibuster in order to pass voting rights legislation. What exactly is that legislation and why is it so important as to set up a battle over the filibuster? To clarify, we are pleased to welcome Jimmy Tingle, a comedian, former commentator for 60 Minutes 2, political candidate and the founder of Humor for Humanity. So I give you Jimmy Tingle on the contents of the Democrats' Voting Rights Bill.
5: What is in the Democrats' Voting Rights Bill? On May 12th, the Senate voted to advance the Democrats' Voting Rights Bill out of committee. That action moves the bill one step closer to law, but it's not clear the Democrats have the votes to pass this legislation. The bill known as For the People Act is similar to the bill passed in March by the House of Representatives. Both of these bills will fundamentally expand the franchise in this country. Many of these changes respond specifically to Republican attempts in Georgia, Florida, and throughout the country to suppress the votes of people of color and other perceived Democratic constituencies. The following are the main provisions of the bill. Number one. States must establish an automatic voter registration system that registers any voting-eligible citizen in government databases. Two, states must permit same-day voting registration. Three, states must allow at least 15 days of early voting. Four, states must employ nonpartisan redistricting commissions to reduce the danger of partisan gerrymandering. Citizens will have the right to challenge gerrymandered districts. This attempts to reverse the result in Rucho, in which the Supreme Court held that courts have no role in addressing partisan gerrymandering. Number five, super PACs and dark money groups have to publicly disclose their donors. Facebook and Twitter must publicly report the source and amount of money spent on political ads. Number six, the first ethics code for the Supreme Court. Number seven, Prohibition on the practice of congresspeople spending taxpayer money to settle sexual harassment cases. And number eight, presidential candidates must disclose their tax returns. The bill, numbered S-1 in the Senate and H.R. 1 in the House to underscore its importance, is the Democrats' most potent way to push back against the flurry of voting restrictions that Republicans are enacting across the country. So if the Democrats are unable to attract enough Republicans to secure 60 votes, the number needed to overcome a filibuster, there will be significant sentiment among the Democrats to eliminate the filibuster, notwithstanding that many will see that as an extreme move. For Talking Feds, I'm Jimmy Tingle, and I approve this message.
0: Thanks very much to Jimmy Tingle. Jimmy graduated from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where he gave one of the funniest commencement speeches in Harvard history. There's a link to it on our website if you want to see and hear it for yourselves.
6: Equitable access to high quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than one million health care supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit ourhealthcalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's ourhealthcalifornia.org.
0: Let's now look a little bit forward. Let me ask a sort of nuts and bolts question. What's your sense of day-to-day? Who is his go-to person or persons? There are the standard institutional roles of responsibility, but do you have a sense, Merrick Garland was for Jamie Gorelick, of who at the department is his most trusted colleague or any way in which he's using any of his senior staff that's noteworthy?
3: Yeah, I think that it's taken him a little bit of time to actually get used to relying on senior staff. That's certainly not how you operate as a judge It's a very different kind of role to relinquish that much power. I do know that in the beginning, he was very hands-on, unusually so, very detail-oriented. I know that a lot of senior staff felt like they were his clerks being asked when they would talk about cases that have been charged and he'd want to go through each. And I think that has died down a little bit. And I think that in its place, as he relinquished some of that control, he's grown to rely on Lisa Monaco quite a bit, especially around national security matters around domestic terrorism matters, you know, just sort of as a really good sounding board. I think he's come to rely on the associate, Vanita Gupta, and his chief of staff, Matt Clapper, for a variety of things, including some of that political stuff Matt was talking about. He knows that his greatest strength is not reading the politics of a situation. He has trained that out of himself over the course of a long career in law enforcement and as a judge, and both of them are much better at it. You know, so when it comes to, for example, when to step in and talk to law enforcement about a sensitive matter, Vanita is actually pretty good at that because she deals with law enforcement all the time and has for sensitive civil rights matters where she had to keep very good relationships with folks that she was basically on the opposite side of. Matt, of course, as we know, worked on Cory Booker's presidential campaign, but also he was Cory Booker's chief of staff. So he has, a uh, pretty keen political sense too. So it seems like those are the folks he's come to rely on for a couple of things anyway that are important.
0: What about Kristen Clark and maybe even Pam Carlin the intellectual power base of the Civil Rights Division?
3: Carlin's a really interesting figure because, you know, she she was working on some of these extremely sensitive matters including the lawsuit against Georgia before Clark was confirmed. And so you're right to point her out as a really important figure in the civil rights division. Garland has a tremendous respect for Kristen Clark, clearly, and I know that he does rely on her for civil rights matters, especially around voting. But keep in mind, a lot of these cases were being worked on before Clark was in the building pattern or practice investigations.
0: Oh, there's a big reversal he did.
3: So again, like I tend not to think about these, think about the stuff that Garland's done more like Amy does and less like, is he reversing? Is he being more Biden-like, more Democrat-like? I really don't know that he thinks of it that way. It really is what he thinks the law and how it should be upheld, which is a little bit different. And sometimes it's going to make Democrats really happy and sometimes it's not. And there are some decisions that he made before Eugene Carroll that didn't get any attention at all that were sort of something that The Democrats might have... I think that the heighton Splitstozer case is the perfect example of this. You had the second highest ranking member of Joint Chiefs of Staff being accused of sexual assault. The Justice Department under Barr had basically said this case cannot go forward. DOJ has to step in, represent Heighton. Now, DOJ is still taking some of that position, but they're only making one of the two arguments that the previous administration made. This is so technical and wonky, but by only making one argument, they actually do give... The plaintiff an avenue to continue her litigation against this very high ranking military official. So, like, that was really subtle and really not covered, but it happened before Eugene Carroll. I just kind of see him as looking at the facts in the law as much as he can.
0: And what about this, Amy? I mean, there are, I think, some divisions in the department that are perennially more left leaning and are making those arguments. Civil Rights Division, maybe OLC, depending, maybe environment. And my best guess would be, as Katie said, that they will not always come out ahead in the department. He really cares, uh, it seems to me, about law enforcement and this basic job of putting people in jail. Does that seem fair?
1: That might be fair. I would say people thought of his record as a judge on the D.C. circuit as being very pro-law enforcement. And so I think you're right there. The pattern and practice investigations, though, that seems to me to be a completely non-controversial move. Some of the police departments really wanted those partnerships that were abandoned by Jeff Sessions and his, in the Trump administration. And given the climate and the Black Lives Matter movement and all of the controversy around police shootings, I think we had to go in that direction. And I'm not sure any administration would have done differently. It's really important that we work on these problems and the Department of Justice has a critical role there.
2: The easiest places for a Democratic AG because the law is on your side, the politics are on your side, and you don't have these cross pressures you have with these hangover cases that really expose kind of institutional fissures and choices you have to make about what you think the case ought to do versus what the department's ongoing long-term prerogatives need to be. It's not a coincidence that Democratic AGs often try to make civil rights a, a big part of their tenure. Obviously, I think they've all felt strongly about it for the right policy reasons, but it's also just a real sweet spot for Democratic attorneys general.
0: I think the theme of all of this is how much sort of four corners by the book and when broader considerations might come into play. Let's say that the January 6th investigation, the biggest ever, and it seems to me they have to plumb the depths of it, if they get to a place where they really can make under the principles of federal prosecution actual charges against Trump himself or Giuliani or Trump Jr., that's a very delicate decision to say the least. How would you see that playing out if the evidence winds up there?
1: I think they'd much rather have the New York state authorities take on those cases. They're not going to want to do this. So I think those are going to be the very, very tough decision. And they may not even have to make them. Those are the big elephants. We're going to have to, you know, that's a wait and see question, I think, Harry.
2: I don't know what leads up to the decision-making process, but I think it is the highest possible bar you would have to clear for any prosecution the department has brought in decades. You can't just treat this as any other process. If you were treating this as any other case, you'd have opened an investigation already, which leads to uh, internal processes and public reporting about that. It's not any other case and you can't treat it that way. And it, it would be foolish to pretend so.
3: You know, I think that what we're seeing is a lot of other places where investigation and in some case lawsuits are happening that will bubble up evidence as we move forward. So whether it's the Senate Judiciary Investigation, the House Oversight Investigation, the January 6th Select Committee investigations into the Trump Organization, of course, the January 6th investigations themselves. These are all things that are starting to bring to light evidence that could someday be used in a criminal prosecution that, to Matt and Amy's point, would be so incredibly difficult to bring, which is why I think that Garland and the Justice Department are content to allow evidence to funnel into those investigations. They've sent lots of documents over to Congress for those folks who are looking into the final days of the Trump administration. They themselves have not stopped any of this. They're allowing Trump's tax returns to be sent over. They are allowing evidence to move out of the department, but they themselves are not proactively trying to prosecute the president. And if you look at the Constitution, you look at the Federalist Papers, you look at the conversations the founding fathers were having, nobody really conceived of a moment where we would be thinking about whether or not to prosecute the president or the former president of the United States, because all these other things were supposed to prevent from happening, including congressional oversight, checks and balances, the will of the people. None of those things have really played out in any sort of way that anybody would imagine. And so now here we are thinking to ourselves, should the Justice Department take all of this evidence and prosecute the president. I think that for the Justice Department, the best thing to happen would be these individual lawsuits. So, for example, the Eric Swalwell lawsuit against Trump, Brooks, Giuliani, and Trump Jr. That will play out on its own. That civil suit, January 6th, will play out on its own. And Congress will play out on its own. Hopefully bringing to light enough public evidence that checks and balances will start kicking in again. The electorate will start doing its its job as well, from the point of view of people who think that Trump is dangerous.
0: Really well said. And I think we all agree they'll be happy if it turns out they can stay in an auxiliary role. All right. We got a minute left for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in Five Words or Fewer. So the question is, who will be the next Solicitor General and when will she or he be appointed? Fourth biggest Official in the department, department's representative in the executive branch in the Supreme Court, and it's an open vacancy. When will it be filled and who will fill it? Five words or fewer.
1: I'll say Elizabeth Prelegar is already there.
2: Oh, perfect five. I'll say, should have been her months ago.
1: Elizabeth is great. We have consensus.
2: Well, yeah, but
0: I'll just say, won't be easy, but Elizabeth. Will be the default. Thank you very much to Katie, Amy, and Matt. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other FEDS-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters, such as, in the last couple days, a conversation about the law that governs whether employers can mandate vaccines, And a sort of change of pace talk with the great Caitlin Flanagan about her essay declaring independence after a fashion from Twitter. So go look at Patreon, see what's there, and you can decide then if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Naus and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Research assistance by Abby Meyer. And our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Jimmy Tingle for explaining the contents of the Democrats voting rights bill. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Ledman. See you next time.